right, well, welcome everybody to Eagle Brook Church. So good to have you with us today if you're at one of our campuses or if you're watching this message online. We have been in a series called Out of the Crowd because Jesus had this amazing ability to see people, to notice people even in a crowd, and Jesus would call them out of the crowd, and that encounter would change their life forever. It has been our hope in this series that that's happened to you. That as you've sat in a crowd at one of our campuses or online, that there's been a moment in one of the messages where you felt like God saw you, God noticed you, and he called you out of the crowd. I was listening to a message by another pastor named Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor at a church in Oklahoma, and he told a story that just had me cracking up. And I think I was cracking up because I could see myself doing something like this, but Craig and his wife Amy were having groups of people from the church over to their house. And these were just a series of events. These were acquaintances, people they didn't know that well. And most of the time, the groups of people would leave at about 9 o'clock or so. But there was this one group that stayed after everyone else had left, and they just kept talking. And Craig was looking at his watch, and he's thinking, oh, it's getting late. I want to go to bed. These people need to go home. And so he started dropping some subtle hints. He said, um, I got to get up really early for work in the morning. One of the guys was like, yeah, me too. And they just kept talking. And then a little bit later, he said, oh, sure is getting late. And they said, oh, yeah, it really is. And they just kept talking. So then he went and turned the heat up in his house to try to make people feel uncomfortable, which that's next level. I wouldn't even thought of doing that. Finally, he pulled his wife, Amy, into an adjacent bedroom, and he just went on a rant he was like, what is wrong with these people? Can't they take a hint? I mean, come on, are they going to be here the whole night? Do I have to start making breakfast? This is ridiculous. He walked from the bedroom back out to the living room, and the group of people were sitting there like this. And that's when Craig looked down and realized there was a baby monitor that was hooked up from this bedroom to the living room, and that group of people had heard everything that he had said. Mm, don't you just want to get away? I mean, it awkward, embarrassing, caught red-handed, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Today, we're going to look at a story in the New Testament that has some similar uh, ideas to it. It's a woman who's caught red-handed. And she has nowhere to run. She has nowhere to hide. It's awkward and embarrassing, but not in a humorous kind of way, in a very serious sort of way. We'll pick things up in John chapter 8. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. Jesus' routine was to often go to the temple to teach. That was a regular basis. It says, a crowd soon gathered, and he, Jesus sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, who often were kind of butting heads with Jesus, brought a woman that they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. You see the language here is very specific. It says that they caught her in the act. This wasn't a he said, she said sort of situation. They caught her in the act, and they brought her before Jesus and this crowd. And the Pharisees, the religious law leaders, they weren't doing this because they loved this woman 
and wanted her to make some healthy changes in her life. They brought her before Jesus and the crowd because she was a tool. She wasn't a person to be loved. She was a tool that they were using to make a point. Because notice who's missing in this equation. The man. If she was caught in the act, well, then he was caught in the act as well. But he's nowhere to be found because that wasn't the Pharisees' purpose. That wasn't their point. In the next verse, it says this. Teacher, the Pharisees said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. Now, I remember reading this for the first time and thinking to myself, what, what's the trap? I mean, as you read that, do you, is it apparent to you right away what the trap is? Well, here was the trap. If Jesus said, just let her go, he would have essentially been siding with Rome. At that time, Israel was under Roman political rule, and there was tension there was tension around, should we obey the Roman law or should we obey the Jewish law? And so if Jesus said, yeah, just, just let her go, he would have been siding with the Romans and the crowd would have turned against him. But if Jesus says, stone her, according to the law of Moses, he would have been agreeing with the Pharisees, which would have undermined his previous criticisms of them. As you can see, Jesus was in a trap. What did Jesus do? It says this, he stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They, the Pharisees, kept demanding an answer. This kind of reminds me of when you're on the phone and your kids want something. You're like, just hold on. Like, no, they keep demanding an answer. Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? And that's what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. What's your answer? What's your answer? What's your answer? What do you, what do you say? Now, what do you think Jesus was writing in the dust when he stooped down? <laughs> Scholars have debated this for years. There's all kinds of theories about what Jesus was writing. The truth is, we don't know. You can ask Jesus when you get to heaven if you want to. Maybe he'll tell you what he was writing in the dust. We don't know what he was writing. But I do think his posture is significant. Because notice that the Pharisees are standing over this woman with rocks in hand, and Jesus is stooped down to her level. It's a posture of compassion. And here's what Jesus answers when he finally speaks. He says this, all right, stone her. Now, if that was all that Jesus had said, the Pharisees would have been happy, because this is kind of what they wanted to hear all along. But that wasn't all that Jesus said. Jesus said this, he said, all right, stone her, but let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. Well, that's an interesting twist. I mean, you can almost hear the record scratching sound. You know, Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone her. And the Pharisees are kind of like, yes, yes. And then, <laughs> and all of a sudden, wait, wait, what did you just say? Yeah, yeah, go ahead and stone her. But if you've never sinned before, why don't you be the one who throws the first stone? Jesus looked like he was going to go left. He juked right. The Pharisees got Jesus juked. That's what happened here. Here's what it says in the next verse. Then he, Jesus, stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. And then I love this last part, beginning with the oldest. 
The oldest guys who have some more wisdom and experience are like, yeah, oh boy, we're out of here. And then the young guys are like, I don't know, maybe I've never sinned before. We'll see. But can you imagine being this woman? Your worst sin caught. Your worst moment on display for everyone to see. The public shame and humiliation. This might be a good spot to point out that there is a difference between shame and guilt. Here's sort of a, a working definition of shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something that you did or was done to you. That's different than guilt, by the way. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Shame would like you to believe that if you fail, you're a failure. If you lose, you're a loser. If you made a mistake, well, you are a mistake. Guilt says, I regret what I did. Shame says, I regret who I am. As you can see, guilt can be healthy. Guilt can push us towards God to receive his grace and his mercy, but shame doesn't do that. Shame pulls us away from God. And we begin to believe that God wants nothing to do with us because of what we've done, and he never will. Maybe the best word for this is condemnation. Condemnation is even though you've confessed your sins, even though you've asked Jesus to forgive you, you still feel this deep sense of shame. That's different than guilt. Guilt is when you feel a conviction over unconfessed sins. That's healthy. That's good. We, we should feel a sense of conviction when we disobey God. But condemnation is different. Condemnation is even though we've confessed, even though we've asked God to forgive us, we still feel a sense of shame. And that is a lie. The irony of this story is that Jesus could have thrown the first stone. Remember he said, hey, if, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. That was Jesus. Jesus had never sinned before. He could have thrown the first stone. But here's what the Bible says about who Jesus is. It said, for God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And that's good news for you. It's good news for me. When my wife was growing up in her family, in her childhood, uh, there was addictions, there was abuse, there was a divorce, there was a suicide attempt. And then she went off to college at a Christian university. And there were times when she was there, one of her roommates had parents who had written a book about Christian marriage. They ran a successful radio program where they talked about Christian relationships and marriages. And my wife remembered thinking, as she would walk through campus, if people only knew. If people only knew what my childhood was like and my background was like, they might think of me different. Now, nobody ever said anything that would make her feel, make her feel that way. It was self-imposed, but that's what shame does. Let me ask you today, is there a part of your life, a part of your past where you feel a sense of shame and embarrassment? 
Maybe for you it was a divorce. Maybe for you it was something that happened in your childhood. It wasn't even something that you did. It was something that was done to you. Maybe it was a financial decision that you made that you feel a real sense of regret and embarrassment about in your life. But let me ask you, is there a part of your life right now where you say, you know, I feel so much shame and embarrassment because of that? I want you to know today that only Jesus Christ can set a human soul free. It's because only Jesus lived a sinless life. He didn't deserve to die, but he voluntarily died on the cross to not only pay the penalty that our sins deserve, but to take away our shame and our condemnation once and for all. You see, the story with this woman doesn't end here. As the crowd walks away, Jesus pulls her to the side and he makes two statements to her. And these are two statements that I believe that God may want to make to you today. Here's the first statement that Jesus makes. He says this, go and sin no more. Now look at what Jesus specifically says. Jesus straightened up. So he stooped down in the dust. He's writing something. He straightens up and he asks this woman, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I, I can't just pass over this because Jesus doesn't look at this woman and say, ah, it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever you want to do, it's fine. God, God loves you anyway. He actually doesn't say that. He says to her, go and sin no more. I was talking to a high school pastor who's at a different church, and he was telling me, he said, I have this fear that my kids are going to graduate from our high school ministry, and all they're going to know about God is that he loves them and he's with them. He said, we've so emphasized the love of God, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. If you're going to emphasize something, emphasize that. But he said, we've so emphasized the love of God to the detriment of God's holiness and God's right righteousness. Jesus didn't look at this woman and say, you know what? It's whatever. It's fine. God doesn't really care what you do. He loves you. He's with you. Anyway, he doesn't say that. He doesn't look at her and say, you don't need to change anything about yourself. You're perfect just as you are. Don't change a thing. Doesn't say that. He doesn't feel the sense that he needs to redefine sin because or else he's going to sound judgmental for saying to her, don't sin anymore. He doesn't do that either. Jesus loved her too much. And so out of his love, he looked at this woman and he said, go and sin no more. I was speaking at a family camp up north this fall, and it was an adult-only session. But this one family brought their like four-year-old son in. And the whole time I was speaking, he was fidgety. I mean, just like, and so the whole time I'm speaking, I keep seeing something moving out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, oh my goodness. And finally, he kind of zoned out a little bit. I thought, okay, we're going to finish this thing strong. And so I asked what I thought was a rhetorical question. I said, how many families have been destroyed by sexual sin? Kid yells out, five. Five. 
everybody in the room starts laughing. It's like a few minutes. I have to just wait until everybody kind of comes back. But then I looked at the group and I said, sadly, it's more than five. I mean, as I thought about this this week, how many families, how many people do I know personally whose families have been destroyed or damaged by sexual sin? It's too many for me to count. Affairs, pornography. If you've done one of those things today, here's what I would want you to know. I would want you to know that God's grace and forgiveness is available to you. But I would also say to you today, go and sin no more. Stop doing it. Move away from it. Move in the other direction. A few months ago, I sold, uh, told a story here at church about a time I went to a restaurant and I ordered what I thought was a beef burger. And it turned out as a plant-based burger. And so I said in that message, I said, hey, I'm pro-plant. Just wanted to get my position out there. I'm pro-plant. I'm for plants. But here's what I'm not okay with. I am not okay with my plants impersonating meat. Okay? That's a 15-yard penalty. If you were a plant, okay, and I'm not accusing any of you of being plants, but if you see a plant, you might want to let them know this. Here's what I want to say to plants. Be authentic. Okay? Just be you. You're not meat. You're never going to be meat. So stop trying to impersonate meat. I looked up what is in a plant-based burger, and one of the ingredients was pea protein. So I bit into what I thought was a juicy Angus beef burger, and instead what I got was pea protein. Well, what I learned is that you have to be careful when you tell a story at Eagle Brook, because there's always someone at one of the campuses or online who has some personal connection to all of this. And so after telling that story, I received an email. And I want to read this email to you. <laughs> she said this, I have a comment regarding Jason's sermon this past Sunday, specifically his distaste for pea protein impersonating meat. I am a master's student in food science and my lab studies plant proteins to enhance their application in plant-based foods such as vegan burgers. No idea what she's talking about there, but... <laughs> she says, a handful of our researchers, myself included, study pea protein specifically and are working on modification techniques to make it look, smell, and taste like real meat. Good luck with that. She concludes this way. She says, give peas a chance. <laughs> now, she wrote this in a good-natured way, by the way. It was a very funny email. And so here's what I would say to her. I will give peas a chance. But here's what I want to say to peas. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Thank you for clapping about that. When I talked about God taking away your shame, okay, and then I'm like, hey, pea protein shouldn't be in meat, and we're like, yes, here we go. This, now we're preaching here. <laughs> Love this church. Uh, <laughs> now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because if you go to a restaurant and you don't have a good experience, you often don't go back. 
I mean, I haven't been back to that restaurant. If you eat a food that you don't really like, you probably aren't going to eat that food again. Why is it then when it comes to our sin, sin that hurts our life and damages our life, do we so often go back to it? The Bible describes this in pretty graphic terms. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. I mean, that's, that's gross, that's graphic, but we've all seen a dog throw up and then go back to it, and you're going, I'm pretty sure that's what made you throw up. <laughs> what, why are you doing that? But I can't tell you how many times as a pastor and as a person, even myself, I have vowed to God, I'm never going to do that again, and then I do it again. And there's been so many times where I've said, oh, 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 I'm different this time. I promise it's never going to happen. And then it happens. Some of us have a sin that's on repeat in our life. And here is the harsh truth about sin and about forgiveness. And it's this, while forgiveness is permanent, the effects of sin are persistent. What do I mean by that? What I mean is forgiveness is permanent. When we turn from our sins and we ask God to forgive us, there is an immediate and permanent forgiveness that we receive in our life. But the effects of sin are persistent. There's a consequence for lying. People won't trust you. They might forgive you, but it might take them some time to begin to trust you again. There are consequences to sexual sin. You can be forgiven of sexual sin. But there might be some effects and consequences that you'll carry with you into a future relationship that you'll have to sort of work through that with God. Forgiveness is permanent, but the effects of sin are persistent. I was reading through a book in the Old Testament called Deuteronomy, and I just want to show you a picture of my Bible. This is a picture of my actual Bible. I like to underline verses that speak to me. I like to circle words that sort of stick out to me in some way. And as I was reading through Deuteronomy 5 and 6, at the very end of Deuteronomy 5 into all of chapter 6, the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, uses two little words six times together. So that. Six times in about a paragraph and a chapter, he says these two words together, so that. Let me just read a few of these verses to you. Deuteronomy 5.29. He says, oh, that their hearts would fear me and keep my commands so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Deuteronomy 5.33. Walk in obedience to all your God has commanded you so that... You may prosper. 6-2, keep the commands I give you so that you may enjoy life. 6-3, very next verse, be careful to obey so that it will go well with you. Six times he says these two little words, so that. And in my Bible, I just wrote in the margin, so what, so that. Because I can't tell you how many times I hear people go, so what. So what if I lied about that? I mean, it was a white lie. It's not going to make a difference. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to find out. So what? Why, why would God care about that? 
so what if I slandered that person? I mean, first of all, it was on Twitter. Everybody kind of does that. And yeah, I was a little rude, maybe. But guess what? It was true. I was right. I mean, hey, if you can't deal with it, I mean, sorry, but it was true. So what if I slandered that person? So what if I was rude or, or in my tone? And eh, so what? It doesn't matter. So what if I slept with that person? God, why do you care? Why do you care what I do in the privacy of my home and what I do in my own personal life? Why does God care about that? Why does he care? So what? To which I believe God would say, so that. God gives us commandments not to restrict us or to control us. God gives us commandments so that life will go well. So that we'll enjoy our life. So that we'll flourish and thrive and prosper. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, go and sin no more. So that it would go well with you. Here's the second statement that Jesus makes to this woman. And, and maybe he wants to make it to you today. And it's this. You are not condemned. Back to the story he said, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus replied. It's worth noting that this woman would have expected judgment. That was what the law of Moses required. And so she would have expected Jesus to judge her. And instead, what she received was mercy. My mother-in-law used to carry $5 gift cards to Starbucks or Caribou with her and if she would go to Target or Walmart and she would see a mom whose kid was misbehaving, she would walk up to that mom and she would say, you are doing a great job and you just hang in there. You keep being a great mom to your son or your daughter and here I wanna give you a gift card, grab a coffee on the way out. And she would have moms crying in aisle F at Target. Because why? Because if you're a mom and you're out in public and your kids are misbehaving, what do you expect? You expect judgment. You expect condemnation. You expect that people are kind of looking at you out of the side of their eye. What you don't expect is mercy. And so these moms, in a moment where they expected judgment, what they were receiving was mercy and kindness instead. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore, there is now, right now, immediate, no condemnation, none, zero, zilch. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to show you a picture of a condemned building. And oftentimes outside of a condemned building, you'll see a sign that says unfit for use. That's what makes a building condemned is it's unfit for use. I believe that we all have a spiritual enemy named Satan. And he would like nothing more than to fill your mind and your heart with so much shame and condemnation that you begin to believe that you are unfit for use. 
that you begin to believe there's no way I could serve God in that ministry. Because look at the things I've done in the past. I'm just, I'm just unfit for that. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, would like nothing more than for you to walk into a church like this and look around at everyone sitting near you and think, oh, I mean, look at all these good Christians with their good Christian families. I bet you they just have this perfect life and perfect past. I don't fit in here. I'm unfit to go to this church. Our spiritual enemy would like nothing more than for you to begin to believe that you are unfit to receive God's love. That because of something in your past or some sin that you did, that God would look at you and say, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with them. That you are unfit to be loved by a king. He would like nothing more than for you to believe, you know, I'm unfit to date that person, marry that person, because man, they're just up here and, and I'm way down here. And I want you to hear today by the Spirit of God that inspired Paul to write those words that we just read. Therefore, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And so today we are going to celebrate the fact that Jesus took away our shame and our condemnation on the cross as we celebrate communion with one another. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke that loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and he raised it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. This weekend in the church calendar is known as Palm Sunday. And it's known as Palm Sunday because the week before Jesus died on the cross, he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey and crowds of people gathered and they took palm branches. That's why they call it Palm Sunday. And they began to wave the palm branches and they were yelling out Hosanna, which means glory to God in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem with a crowd of people adoring him. And a week later, that same crowd spit at him, hurled insults at him. And yet Jesus looked at that crowd of people and he said to God, God, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And so today we celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. We celebrate the what he did on the cross to pay for our sins. And so before you take communion today, I would just invite you to have a moment of prayer with God where you just close your eyes and you thank Jesus for dying on the cross. And we confess our sins and we get right with God and we prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection next weekend. As all this is happening, the band is gonna play some music, and then they're going to close us in a final song.
Jesus, we thank you that that is the truth today. That you alone are enough. You are enough to satisfy our souls. God, I just pray that whatever we came in here carrying today, wherever we find ourselves, would you just remind us that there is a hope there's a peace, there's a satisfaction that can be found when we put our trust into you. God, would you help us do that in this moment? Would you help us surrender anything that's holding us back from coming before you? God, you are the answer that all of us are searching for. We just thank you. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for who you are to us. God, we love you. We pray this all in your powerful name. Amen. Amen, everybody. So good to be with you today. If you would like prayer for anything, feel free to come down front. Otherwise, we will see you next week.